That was beautiful. Thank you, worship team. I was just thinking of, as I was about to come up, when we get to heaven, I hope you guys will reformulate as a band again and we'll get to play for eternity. I get to listen to you forever. That'd be great. Right? Amen. Boy, they're really good. <laughs> or you can buy the CD, right? <laughs> oh, that's great. So, um, so let me respond. Yeah, so it's good to be back with you. We did sociology. Where's the church? We talked about what it means to literally follow Jesus. This morning, we looked at tools and habits and behaviors that help us to do that. And tonight, we're going to look at evangelism. But I've been asked this question out of the pop out of your mind, something about buildings. So let me start there. And as I was thinking about it for like a whole 30 seconds before I walked up here, I realized I have a lot of thoughts about buildings. So let me tell you just a number of different nuances about it because this is, there's no simple one answer to this question. And I can't see into the future. But I have some themes and ideas I want us to consider. I got to meet a young church planter who said to me one time, we never wanted to build a building. Buildings are expensive. Buildings are a pain. We want to be nomadic. We want to go where the need is. So we're going to rent till we die. I said, wow, okay. We'll see how it goes. So we met for lunch every now and then. And uh, it was going okay for a while until um, some of those young couples started having little ones. And um, suddenly, like, nursery space became kind of a thing, and then children's ministry. And before long, a couple years later, they were asking me, do you think we could rent your gymnasium when you're not using it? And they moved into our church for the next 10 years. So the nomadic church, who was all about not having buildings, really enjoyed having a permanent place. I also talk to pastors who've inherited uh, buildings that have been around a few years, been neglected a bit, and they can't stand their buildings because it's just a money pit. They're dilapidated. They stink. They're a disaster. The church where I cut my teeth as an associate pastor, the birds had broken through the windows. There was literally guano on my desk. Cleaning this place was a disaster, and, and it was always in perpetual behind in upkeep. We could never quite get this thing up to speed, if you will. So I've, I've talked to pastors that wish they could get rid of their buildings. Some are wishing they would have buildings. I begin to wonder, though, about this. In COVID, we realized a lot of ministries aren't necessary. We enjoy them, but they're not needed for the absolute work of the kingdom, and so some pastors are wondering, I don't really want my building anymore. Others, again, they're church planters that have been schlepping chairs around in hotel lobbies. are like, I'll take your building, <laughs> right? So see, it cuts both ways. I also wonder in the coming years if, well, I actually don't think, at some point the government is probably going to pull the tax um, shelters, if you will, regarding giving churches, properties, all of that. And I, and I don't know when that's going to be, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's in my lifetime that those things get removed as just part of the squeeze on churches. When I was in a city council meeting one time and I heard them discussing, you know, it'd be great to tax these churches. I mean, I began to hear that conversation, Okay. And others are saying, you know, why, what good is the church really for our society? Why do we give tax breaks for those that give to churches? Those questions keep popping up in our culture, and I believe at some point they're going to stay up. 
So again, these questions about, so buildings can be helpful, they can be a drag on the system. That If you're nimble and light and renting, that can be a blessing. Sometimes having a permanent place really is helpful. So the answer is, I have no idea. <laughs> but I know that we should just always hold everything that we have loosely. If God gives us a building, may we be good stewards of it. If we're not able to have a building, God may want us to do some lean and nimble things that we don't need that, and that's fine too. I do know that I, th I think, I think I know, I think I know that the church is going to continue to press itself out into the culture. It's probably going to end up more in, in living rooms and in small groups and what we call in Novo Kingdom Outposts. Little bands of folks getting together to reinforce each other, encourage each other, pray for each other, study scripture, and live on mission together. And you could have lots of those little things all over a city, and maybe you gather once a month in a rented space. Or See, it's just lots of different ways it can be done. I don't know what the answer is. So please don't hear me tell you that I'm recommending you should do this or do that. The Spirit's got to lead each of your congregations but I'm just wondering what it's going to look like in the future. I think things could look quite different. And again, as I was reading that book by Alistair Begg, one of you thought it was Alex Trebek, and it was funny. It's Alistair Begg, great theologian from Scotland, and in his book Brave, again, I want to just recommend you that. It's a series, I think, of sermons that he gave on the, the teaching from the book of Daniel in the first seven chapters. And the argument is God's people have at times lived in Babylon, if you will. They have lived not in a, in a zone or a country or a place that was you know, helpful to their message. And God is still in control and we can still live even in hostile territory. In fact, the church around the world is often living in hostile territory. And in some places where it's really hostile, the church is really thriving. So God's up to something in all of this. So did I answer that question with saying nothing and everything at the same time? Because I don't know the answer. But I know that we just have to be nimble and say, Lord, what would you have us do? What's the best stewardship of what you've given us? And how do we go forward? Some buildings, some churches will have buildings, some won't. Some will do all kinds of hybrid things. There's just gonna be a, a whole, it's a whole new day coming and we'll see what God does. Fair enough? What I do know was in the late 1980s, after I got out of college, I went back and became um, a college pastor in a church of about 1,200 people. It wasn't a mega church, but it was, at the time, a significant ministry. And, I, and, a, and as part of the new staff there, we had to take Evangelism Explosion. Now, how many of you remember I've, I've taken that course? Okay, a handful, yep, quite a few, about a third of you. It came out of D. James Kennedy's ministry out of Coral Ridge, does that sound right, from Florida? And it was, a, it was a wonderful gospel presentation. It had a whole script. And as we went through the course, we would go each week and we would learn the next part, the Bible verses, the memory, and you learn the parts of the script. And we'd practice on one another. And then we'd get in cars and go visit the first-time visitors. And we did this over, I want to say, 15 weeks or so. And I, and I memorized illustrations about eggs and a blender and sin and stuff like that. And I, and I knew the script. And then what's interesting to think about is I learned the gospel presentation and would, how do you know you're going to heaven if you would die today and questions like that. It, and it really worked in the 80s. And then when I became a pastor of a church in the mid to late 90s, it didn't work at all. What happened? 
It's simply that our culture began to change. Because the assumptions in that program was assuming that most people actually believed in God, had a reverence for the Bible, and so you were using Bible texts to reinforce the truth and to kind of get wayward people kind of back on track. But the assumption was that the Bible was revered. It was something authoritative, and we could use Bible verses as as arguments for coming into the kingdom. And then in the 90s and following, I'm now in churches where the community I'm in doesn't revere the Bible as anything authoritative, and, and none of it makes sense based on their worldview. So it was a great program in its day, in its context, but we are now in a new context. And this evening, I want to think, help us think about what I'm calling intercultural evangelism because wherever we live, work, and play, we're with people from all kinds of walks of life, with all kinds of backgrounds and perspectives. And if our gospel presentation, if we're sharing with somebody about Jesus, the argument is we're going to have to be sensitive to where they're coming from because what we talk about we'll completely miss if we don't understand the frame of reference from where they're coming. Does this make sense? So intercultural evangelism is this idea that we're going to put Jesus Christ at the center of somebody's worldview in order to initiate them into discipleship through what we're calling culturally relevant starting points. If we're going to help them come to Jesus, we're going to have to put Jesus into their worldview in a way that makes sense to them, which is going to require us to listen carefully, to do more discernment instead of just doing a lot of talking. And that's going to be a new thing for a lot of us. So what is a worldview? Why is this important? So let's talk about what that is. So we're going to unpack this in a few moments. George Hunter, great theologian, you know, missiologist, He helps us understand this. It takes often people up to 30 encounters for them to finally make a faith commitment. So think about that. So so 30 touches, if you will, of the gospel, of, of Jesus' material, of explaining things, of sharing things. So you might encounter somebody and you're you're only in touch number two. And then Wally comes along and he's number five. And then my friend Nick actually in that person's life is number 10. And we still think, oh, they're so far from God. Well, they're on a journey. And God can use a number of us to touch their life. And then you might be the one that comes along and asks a simple question. And they cross over to faith because you were number 29 helping them become 30. Get the idea. It's a journey for a lot of people. And the idea that somehow we're just going to go out there and slam the deal and make the case and put the notch on our belt, if that was ever healthy, which I don't think it was, those days are long gone. It's about listening to what the Spirit is doing in this person, in their worldview, in their context. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God has been making it grow. So neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything, but only God is the one who makes things grow. So we get to play, and God does his work, and we trust him with the results. Our job is to show up in a winsome way, 
Let the Holy Spirit do his work as well. I want to give you an idea about a, about a bounded set versus a centered set model. You see the picture there on your slides. We've got slides, I think, on your, in your hands this evening. You'll notice that um, this idea of a bounded set, you've got the cross that represents Jesus, and you've got a person inside the circle, you know, very close, moving towards the cross. You've also got somebody who's inside the circle who's actually moving away from the cross, but in this paradigm, if you're inside the circle, we would say that they've been reached, they're good, we're done. Even though one person's moving closer to Jesus and one person is actually on a journey away. But because they seem to be in close proximity, perhaps it's because they, they go to church regularly, we assume they're in because they've raised their hands, signed the books, they've joined the church, they've been to the membership class. They may actually in their heart be in rebellion, but we think of them as they're in, they're one, we're done. So when we look at it from this perspective, where is the energy for evangelism? I guess it's to get anybody on the outside to come in but what about that person who's actually in sort of, but actually heading out, right? When we think in terms of just in or out like this, it limits how we do ministry and evangelism and discipleship. We like to talk about this issue of what's called the centered set, which is the next one. The idea is you've got people who are moving toward Christ. Some are actually very close to the cross. There's a few folks that are quite far away, but they're actually pivoting and turning towards Christ. They have a long way to go, but they're actually heading in the right direction. We want to be reaching those folks who are actually turning inward towards him. And for those that are moving away, we want to begin to help them turn. We like to think of it this way. Discipleship is the process of keeping people Christ-focused amid all the temptations to turn their allegiances elsewhere. Discipleship is a set of loving, intentional activities governed by the goal of initiating persons into Christian discipleship in response to the reign of God. So in our understanding, evangelism and discipleship are really linked together. They're not so separate at all. We need the gospel every day. We need to be giving our lives to Jesus every day. We want to make sure our hearts, even though we may be close, we're not turning outward. We want to love the people that might even be far from God, but are actually making a pivot towards him. We want to be sensitive, and we want to move towards them as well. So the idea is this. We want to have a culturally relevant starting point as we work with people who don't yet know God. We want to be what's called in the literature receptor-oriented. We want to be thinking, how does my, my story of the gospel, my presentation, my sharing, is it well-received from their perspective? Do they understand what I'm talking about? We want to have the listener in mind. So for example, what cultural background does this person come from? What's their starting point? What are their frames of reference about big questions? God, Jesus, earth, human beings, what's our purpose? Because different religions, different philosophies have all different answers to this. Where is this person that I'm speaking with, where are they coming from? 
what are points of connection that I can actually connect with them and relate to them and they'll understand me? And isn't good listening and good talking, aren't those just really delightfully related? Good talking is actually about good listening. It's about understanding where they're coming from because if we're just talking at, you've had that before. Somebody's talking at you versus talking with you. And the with you is because we're trying to find common points of interest and we're sharing and we're listening and we're sharing in ways that make sense back and forth as opposed to they're just talking and I don't get it. They're not even noticing I'm here. There was a leader in my church years ago that I just felt like every conversation was he talked at me. And every time we talked, within three minutes, he was on to the end times. Doesn't matter what we were talking about, Within three minutes, we were all going to the end times, and he had all the charts and the whole shebang, and he was laying it out, and he never actually talked with me, never asked me how I was actually doing. It was just a monologue every time. And he was so proud to advertise how he's out there evangelizing, and I would think, ay, ay, ay. I don't want to be the other end of his evangelism. I didn't like talking to him for five minutes. Wow, we've got to be thinking, how do I connect with this person in their worldview and be respectful where they're coming from? And by the way, this good listening and good talking thing, if we learn to master that, that's actually how friendships begin, right? Listening, respecting, finding points of common interest. When Philip shared his gospel story in Isaiah, to the Ethiopian eunuch. It was very different from how he shared the gospel in Acts chapter eight. They're both in chapter eight. eight one's in eight twenty-nine, the other one's in eight five. But because of the person's starting point, gospel presentations can be very different. Again, I was just trained, there's one way to say the gospel, a certain set of illustrations, use these Bible verses, bangity bang, it's all gonna make sense, and boom, you should win them before the night's over. That's how I was trained. That's not how life works. If it ever did, it certainly doesn't now. Make sense? We good? So, Bible characters would actually tailor their message to different recipients. So must we. So this also requires what we're going to call a double listening, which is literally listening to the person and listening to the Holy Spirit what, would you, what, what do I need to say? What questions should I ask? What's a way to encourage, to, to challenge, whatever it is? Holy Spirit, speak to me while I'm listening. I want to listen well to both. And that takes quite a bit of practice, actually. But as I'm talking with anybody who I suspect doesn't know Jesus, I'm immediately shooting the arrow prayers up. Oh, Jesus, I need you now. Holy Spirit, come on me. Give me insight and wisdom. Give me ideas. I just want to know that I'm hearing them well but I'm also hearing from you what you want me to do next. Because friends, we live in a pluralistic world now. We live in a world where within uh, 13, 14 hours you can be on a triple seven out of LAX and be in a whole different part of the world, literally on the other side of the planet in 13, 14 hours. That changes everything. We have tools in our pocket that you were actually asking us to practice with a few minutes ago. 
that has every sermon, every idea, every speech, everything that's ever been written or audio blasted can now be brought up on your screen in your pocket. You can read it, listen to it. We can get anything about anything anywhere. We are in a completely different world. I talk about even my grandparents. My grandfather hardly left a 20-mile radius of where he was born. And I have literally been all over the world and just a couple generations, completely different experiences. And I wonder what's coming next when we all are plugged in and there's avatars and all kinds of weird stuff. I, all that freaks me out, actually. Holy moly. <laughs> in fact, just thinking about how we're going to do evangelism in the meta world, I, you can figure that out, Nick. That's, that's your generation, man. I don't know, buddy. Whew. But I do know this that Jesus ministered in a pluralistic world. There were different kind of folks with different backgrounds, different religious perspectives, different philosophies, and Jesus ministered to all kinds of different people, and the way he explained his purpose in life was different for each one of them. So, for example, with the Samaritan woman, a woman filled with shame, he came at it one way to Zacchaeus, a gentleman completely indifferent to the religious systems of the day. Jesus had a different angle with him. And then, of course, the man filled with demons who's struggling with spiritual power, Jesus comes at that. You know, a whole other agenda, in a, again, a whole other way. So it's interesting to think about the gospel has these multifacets that we can highlight for different kinds of people in their different contexts. So the challenge becomes, and the privilege, is to figure out where the person in front of me is literally coming from in terms of their worldview, how they see the world. Worldview, again, is the lens with which you make sense of reality. It's the philosophy, it's the religion, it's the social norms, it's the ways you were brought up. It's all those factors that help us make sense of what we're experiencing right in front of us. It's our worldview and people have different worldviews. And to bring Jesus to different worldviews requires understanding at least what's the person's worldview that's in front of me, what are their needs, and what are their hurts? And how do I begin to address those things? So worldview, according to Paul Hebert, he's a wonderful theologian and um, anthropologist. He said that it's the foundational, cognitive, affective, meaning dealing with emotions, and the evaluative assumptions and the frameworks that a group of people make about the nature of reality in which they use to order their lives. It encompasses people's images or maps of their reality of all things that they use for living their lives. So it's the underlying cultural assumptions that will encompass a worldview. It will deal with emotions, their beliefs, and their values. And therefore, that worldview, whatever it is that they come from, will inform what people think, how they evaluate options, and even why they do or don't respect Jesus is shaped by worldview. Now, it's interesting, scholars point this out, that, that people become what they love not simply what they think. And so it behooves us to begin to think about what is it that really captures people's imagination, captures their hearts more than just what's professed 
in their minds because we become what we really love. And the worldview will give us clues about what people love, which affects where they place their allegiance. But here's something else to keep in mind. Just because a person has a worldview, a map of the world, if you will, those models are not complete. They may actually, again, just be perceptions of reality. It may not encompass the whole of reality. But it's, again, the framework that this person is operating in. And as people made in the image of God, we must respect them and their worldview and start there. It honors people when we do that. Please don't hear me say we're watering down the gospel. We're just simply tailoring the gospel to fit that worldview so that it makes sense from where they're coming from. We'll get to all the issues eventually. We've just got to start from a place where they can hear it. So it's interesting, this uh, scholar, Brenda Colleen, she's a New Testament theologian, and I'll read you this quote. She said this, very interesting. She said, the New Testament does not develop a systematic doctrine of salvation. Instead, she says, it, pre it presents us with a variety of pictures taken from different perspectives. The variety of images attests to both the complexity of the human problem and its solution. She says, no single picture is adequate to express the whole. Each image is a picture of salvation from one perspective, posing and answering one set of questions. And when seen together, they balance and qualify one another. We need all of them in order to gain a comprehensive understanding of salvation. So she's saying a lot. Let me give you some examples of the kinds of images that she's referring to. So we talked a lot this week already about, about the idea of salvation as related to the kingdom of God. We've been talking about the kingdom. We can also talk, uh, use language of eternal life. We can talk about regeneration. We can talk about being made new in Jesus. We can talk about conversion. We can talk about redemption. All biblical ideas, all biblical concepts. There's imagery in the scriptures even of the idea of a ransom. We've been bought with a ransom. Of course, there's images of forgiveness, about even being in Jesus Christ. There's ideas of glorification, when we're finally with our risen king. Some would talk about even being union with Christ. All of these images are all sprinkled throughout the teachings of Scripture. And we can use those different angles to deal with different kinds of folks, given where they're coming from. And so if your gospel presentation always talks about kingdom, when ransom might be a better image for their worldview, it'll help us to shift to another metaphor, another image. The same thing with theories of the atonement. A lot of us were taught that there's only one meaning behind the atonement, but Scripture is actually broader than that. And we're not going to try to wrestle with which one is correct. These are all reflected in Scripture in different ways. We just mentioned that Christ as ransom is clearly in the scriptures. There's the idea of Jesus as a substitute. The idea that Christ is very linked closely to it, that Christ receives our punishment is a theme. There's also the idea of Christ as an example for us to follow. 
There's also Christ as victor over the powers of darkness. All of those themes are part of the theories of the atonement, and all of these can be used when working with different kind of folks from different kind of perspectives. You might have been trained to think of it as one of them, and if you're in the right cultural context, it'll make sense to that person, but if you're using the idea of substitute with somebody who really needs to be thinking more about Christ as victor, it's time to pivot to a new image. So we'll unpack that here in a few moments. So I've got a chart on the next one. You can take a look at this. I hope it's in uh, big enough font there. If not, grab your super, super bifocals, trifocals, whatever it takes, and we're going to unpack this thing a little bit because here's a great chart that explains different worldviews. There's essentially in our world today four major worldviews. We've actually typically thought in terms of three, and this last one, indifference, is kind of an emerging one. And sociologists are saying, yeah, that's, that's actually kind of a whole new burgeoning worldview. We'll unpack them. Here we go. So the first worldview is the world of guilt and justice, okay? Now, actually, go back. We're going to stay on the chart for a minute. Thank you. So I'm just going to walk through these. So this one takes place mostly here in the West. By that, I mean North America and Europe. The result of sin in this worldview is that there's guilt and separation from God. The solution in Jesus is payment and is substitution. The salvific image has to do with a courtroom. And clearly, Paul uses language like that to talk about that, especially in the book of Romans. There's a lot of that imagery there. Our relationship with God, then, in this worldview, the judge who declares us not guilty. You are free. You are free from your sin. You can go. That's the worldview that I have been raised in. It's the way I've understood explaining the gospel. And then I realize when I try to use some of that language with somebody from a shame and honor culture, it doesn't land. They don't even know what you're talking about. Shame and honor culture is often in the East, the Middle East, North Africa, Asia. Their whole worldview is about sin. The, the big issue with, with sin and brokenness is the issue of shame. The solution in Jesus then can be honor can be restored. You can be cleansed. And therefore there can be relationship and cleansing. And a father who restores honor is how our relationship with God is portrayed in a shame and honor culture. Now, for those of us that we live in the West, that might feel really different, but there really are biblical themes and ideas that resonate with that as well, which we'll look at in a few minutes. If you've ever talked to somebody from a fear and power worldview, somebody from the South, Sub-Saharan Africa, tribal co communities, uh, the Caribbean, etc., they're dealing with fear, curses, and bondage. And what they need in Jesus is deliverance. Salvation in their worldview is about freedom and about power. And a relationship with God is then I can be close to a God who will protect and deliver me. Charles Kraft, who has um, been one who's influenced me greatly both in his books and I've gotten to know him a little bit, had him speak at my church and did a, a healing conference and I've spent a little bit of time in his home. And um, as I've gotten to know him, he tells the story 
about how he and his wife were trained as anthropologists. They went down to minister literally in Africa, and they show up with their Bibles, and they're ready to go through the book of Romans to explain the Romans road, way to salvation. And the tribal leaders said, um, I don't know about all that, but does your God, can they kick out the demons that are oppressing my people in that hut over there? And the anthropologist, Dr. Charles Kraft, is like, um, no, we, we have to go through the scriptures. I'm going to lead you to Christ. And they're like, yeah, I don't know about that, but we need your God to, to clean house. <laughs> so Dr. Kraft went home and reread the New Testament and reread the scholarship and realized so many commentators he had been reading and, and soaking up their wisdom were through an enlightenment worldview that completely downplayed the supernatural. And he realized, <laughs> I've been had, if you will. He actually became an expert in healing and deliverance ministries and has had a great, amazing ministry in that area. And it was because he literally confronted people in a completely different worldview that he had to reevaluate his worldview and realize his gospel presentations needed to broaden. So here's the newest one that's emerging around the world. It's this worldview we're calling indifference or in response, belonging with purpose. Where is this located? Because of the upsurgence of all of the technology that allows people around the world to literally be in touch. It's happening sort of all over the world, but it's happening more to young people. And the sin's result for them is just literally indifference. They just don't care. You ever talk to somebody in this worldview, you can explain God loves you, and, and, and you're, but you're a sinner, and, and God can heal you, and, and all that, and they're just like, Whatever. Right? It's just whatever. Just, they're completely indifferent to it all. And yet, that generation that doesn't believe anything about truth and or any of these issues, but they are starving for community. And they'll go to great lengths to experience real community. What they really want with Jesus, then, is a belonging with a purpose. So a salvation image that we think will work with them is the idea of coming home and having a place to come home to. And so a relationship with God for this crowd is the image of a family that welcomes you home. Nick, you're a young guy that probably, you know, you work a lot with that crowd, right? It's, it begins to resonate, doesn't it? It's an emerging one, but they're discovering it in a lot of different cultures, but young people who've got post-modernity in their heads, this is what's showing up in how they respond and the images that work in terms of the gospel for them. So now we're going to dive a little deeper into each of these. So in the guilt and justice worldview, this is the worldview that most of us have probably been raised in. We, we, we gravitate to Psalm 38, 4, my guilt has overwhelmed me like a burden too heavy to bear. Concepts about guilt and justice and punishment, personal responsibility, judgment. These themes, we resonate. There, there is a thing as justice. There's a right and a wrong. And because of our sin, we're guilty before God. Those themes just, just easily fall out of us because they're part of our worldview. Our whole um, legal theory is actually based in Greco-Roman ideas of justice and guilt and right and wrong. It showed up then in our legal system, and our American justice system is built on these ideas. 
And so a society that's based, of course, on the individual and his or her conduct, we're going to really want to make sure that we are, in terms of justice, that we're impartial, that we respect people's autonomy, we respect people's personal rights, all of those are very, very important. But see, that's because we're coming out of the Enlightenment and the Renaissance and those philosophers that created that worldview for us. So we're tuned into accountability personally through focusing on humanity as self-determined, private, and reasoned individuals. And so we reason with people about their sin and about justice, and those ideas resonate for much of our Western world. So those ideas, of course, were really prominent in the Reformation, and much Reformation theology wraps around those themes because that was the dominant worldview of those theologians at that time. The penal substitutionary theory of atonement then was just presented as the absolute way to think about this because it fit the worldview of the theologians who were writing about it at the time. So we're we tune in to the wages of sin is death, Romans 6.23. And all of that is true, by the way. It's just that there's more images in Scripture to touch other worldviews as well. So if you're going to do evangelism in a guilt and justice worldview, then you assume the audience has a strong sense of personal responsibility. And you present Jesus as a personal choice that each of us has to decide. When I was with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship in college, I was learning how to do some leadership in that context. We made it our mission that everybody on the campus of UC San Diego would have the opportunity to make a decision for or against Jesus Christ. I mean, that was our stated mission. Every individual is going to have the opportunity to hear the gospel, and they can say yes up, thumbs up or down, their choice, but we're going to get it out to all of them. Now, we didn't actually get that. We couldn't get it to all of them, but it was our stated goal, but the implicit idea that everybody's going to make a choice, yes or no, individually, personally. And of course, the audience has this assumed idea of a strong sense of justice, of clear rights and wrongs. What you're hearing today in postmodern culture is there's no such thing as rights or wrongs until you grade my paper unfairly. And then it's interesting how some of that changes quickly. It's all just a social construct until you don't pay me the rent, right? And then it's like, well, wait a minute. <laughs> There is right and wrong, right? It's, so that system, by the way, I think is totally self-defeating, but it is lodged in the minds of a lot of people today. And so if you're in the postmodern mindset of there's no such thing as right and wrong and no such thing as truth, us coming along and banging on Bible verses about the wages of sin is death and you're wrong is either repulsive or they're just totally indifferent to it. So in this worldview, the justice worldview, Good evangelism, effective evangelism, presents the gospel as the fulfillment of justice, therefore satisfying the need for divine righteousness through the payment of sin's penalty. And of course, in the Old Testament, the Levitical law addressed individual responsibility through individual sacrifices and atonement for sin. We see that throughout the Old Testament system. In the New Testament, Romans 3, 9 and following, emphasizes our personal responsibility and culpability for sin. 
And so salvation as atonement for guilt, that's a legal image. Or salvation as a covenant relationship, it's a relational image. But all of those things come out of this justice worldview. And I think most of us, again, are most comfortable in this one. The challenge for us, though, is the folks that we might be running across in the house across the street or in the apartment upstairs or in the workstation next door or in the classroom, wherever, they may not be coming from that worldview. And so our approach isn't making any sense. Well, we, yeah, we'll get to that in just a second. But I, I will say this. John Wesley and, and, and others, Charles Finney, Bill Bright, they were all about you know, helping people realize a sense of guilt, right? The sawdust trail of evangelism. Come down and repent, right? It was all about your guilty, come and make it right. Revivalists were famous for this kind of worldview stuff. Bill Bright wrote the four spiritual laws based in this worldview, right? Here's the four spiritual laws. God loves you. You're guilty of sin. Jesus is the payment for that sin. And you can have salvation from condemnation. I mean, that's essentially what the four spiritual laws say. You know, God's got a wonderful plan for your life, but you're guilty and messed up. And those were very effective, but not as effective today in our current worldview. So just thinking about that, I asked the question, but I think you're already beginning to realize it works for some, but it may not be as effective as it once was. Let's pivot. The shame and honor worldview Margaret Mead and Ruth Benedict were the anthropologists years ago that, that first began to recognize this as a distinct worldview. In this cultural context, shame is an external control by the, over the entire group, by the group, for the group. Shame runs deep in the system, and people's behavior is shaped by this idea of shame. External condemnation of conduct through diminished status in the community. If you behave this way, the community will look down upon you and you will be set aside from the community and nobody wants that to happen in this worldview. So conformity, it all works by the idea of shame. And by the way, 70 to 80% of the global population hold this worldview. So we here in the West are using images of guilt and scales and punishment, and 80% of the world is actually in this worldview, and that doesn't make a lot of sense. So it's interesting, and this blows my mind. I, I'm still, I don't get it, because I'm not in this worldview. But coming to the Lord as a community is totally acceptable in this worldview. I'm such an individual, I'm such a product of American culture and American Christianity that even when I read the scriptures talking about Cornelius and some people, comes their whole household comes to faith, I'm like, wait, do they all really understand? Right, because that's my individualism getting caught up in a completely different sense of shame and honor. In these cultures, they all look around, are we going to do this? Yes, and the whole community will come to faith. It's a totally different way of being, right? I still struggle with it intellectually, but I've seen it work. 
Now, in a shame and honor worldview, you can use ideas from Genesis 2 and 3. Adam and Eve had no shame. Then the fall creates this sense of shame for failing in their relationship with God. And yet, Jesus, in Luke 15, literally restores honor to the sons who have blown it, right? Isn't that interesting that in a shame and honor culture, that, those, um, those parables make a lot of sense. They don't resonate, I mean, they, I love them, but they have a different emotional um, appeal to people coming from a shame and honor. The father elevates that son, puts the ring on the finger and the robe around his shoulders and puts new sandals on his feet. In a shame and honor culture, that imagery is really powerful. Could God really do that? When I have dishonored my family in some way, God would bring me back into a family? Powerful imagery. When Jesus approaches the Samaritan woman, he honors her, even though she's a lower social status, that Jesus as a male, as a Jew, would talk to this woman who's been all over the place in her morality, and she's, you know, she's there at noon because she knows nobody else is going to be there because she has a whole lot of shame. And Jesus doesn't belittle her. He doesn't do the four spiritual laws on her. He honors her. Very interesting. Now, he challenges her, but he comes at it very differently. He shares salvation, not condemnation. And then she goes off and tells the village, you've got to come see this man. He honors her. In biblical cultures, there's this whole idea of ascribed shame where you're assigned to a class of people because of physical attributes or, or disabilities. I mean, the folks who were the lepers, right? You read about them in the scripture. They're set aside. They're cast aside. They, they have such lower worth in the culture. They feel a collective shame about their, about their bodies and about their being. And the gospel says you're still loved and you can be restored. Of course, in, also in biblical culture, there's achieved shame. If you're a tax collector or a prostitute and so forth, you can have shame because of various behaviors that the culture deems shameful. But the gospel meets them as well. Now it's interesting, there is, in the millennial generation today, their main emotional response in relationship to morality is this whole thing about, they're very sensitive to shame and to honor. Brene Brown, who's done a lot of great research in the area of shame today, she's actually based out of the greater Houston area, done some amazing TED Talks, has some really great books, really been researching shame, which sounds like a tough topic, and it is, but her material can actually be very liberating in some ways. She's talking about shame as the fear of disconnection from others because of something they did or failed to do. And shame causes people to see themselves as unworthy of love or belonging. It's amazing how many young people today in various cultures, you know, are, are, are just addicted to social media and where shame and honor is actually tweaked to shame or fame. <laughs> Everybody wants to be famous, even doing deplorable things to get the likes, if you will. They live for the likes. 
One of my disciplines is to actually, I might post something, but a discipline is not try to be impressed by the little rush I get from looking at how many likes I got. I got a little dopamine hit from that. And I'm like, let's not get addicted to that. But in the, in the social media world, you're honored if you're famous and you're shamed if you're excluded. Th- these themes play deep in that world. So if we're going to do evangelism in a shame and honor culture, if somebody, again, in the, the home across from you or at your work or at your grandkids' soccer game or whatever, if they're coming from a shame and honor worldview, then we want to honor people, especially when the higher status person crosses boundaries and literally reaches out to people that they don't expect you to love them because you're of a different class, but you actually go to their home anyway. That's huge. The very fact of doing that is the beginning of your evangelism. You can work with a group dynamic. Remember in Acts chapter 16, the jailer brings his whole family to the Lord. Consider how Peter shared the gospel with Cornelius in Acts 10. Again, these are working more communally than just individually. And the key theme in the idea of working with a shame and honor worldview is the theme of reconciliation. You may be dishonored, you may feel shame, but you can be lifted up, you can be reconciled. Luke 15, all those parables show that. Even Joseph's willingness in the Old Testament in Exodus, I mean, in the end of Genesis, to cover his brother's offenses in Genesis 50. I was just reading that whole section recently in my kind of annual Bible, Bible reading, and I was covering that territory again. And it's amazing the family system dynamics and how he's shunned and he's sent away and they collude against him. And then he realizes who they are and, and all the drama that goes with that. But he, at the end of the day, he covers their offenses. He does not hold it against them. He still honors his brothers. And the idea is that God can honor and restore you. If you're in a shame and honor worldview, that is good news. And because of Jesus, you can be restored. Wow. If you're doing evangelism in a shame and honor worldview, it's also important for you to be honest about your own failures and struggles and how God has still lifted you up. You've not been excluded. You've not been shunned. You've been forgiven. You've been honored and welcomed back in. Those themes resonate very deeply. So how about a fear and power worldview? Paul writes in Ephesians, this, chapter 6, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Bible has some really amazing things to say about the spirit world. I've actually been a real fan of Dr. Michael Heiser. I've been just reading all of his stuff. If you're not familiar with Heiser's research, I stumbled across him about three years ago, and I'm trying to digest his body of material. He's got about 400 podcasts, and now that you know how to do a podcast, because you taught us tonight, right? We can all get the podcast. He's got about 400 episodes walking you through the scriptures, looking very carefully at the Old Testament, New Testament, and understanding the supernatural background in the scriptures. And it is fascinating. It's material that's always been there, and he highlights in a way that makes sense, and you're like, oh my goodness. So I'm on episode like 34 out of 400 in the podcast. 
And every time I get in my car, no more radio, no more talk radio, that makes me angry. But Michael Heiser, man, he's building me up every time I go to the grocery store. Highly recommend it. But he'll unpack this worldview, especially in fear and power. Can Jesus overcome our fear of the spirit world and witchcraft and the evil eye? That's a question that fear and power people are wondering. This Jesus that you bring to me, can he deal with all that? And as Dr. Kraft was wrestling with, he was like, I'm going to do the Roman's road. And they're like, we need this. I share with you Charles Kraft's experience, yes. What's interesting, though, about this, even though our culture is very rationalistic, it comes out of the Enlightenment, that's really our our history, 71% of U.S. citizens have experienced some kind of paranormal experience. And about 90%, the statistics show us, have actually prayed for supernatural healing. So as much as we're a scientific culture, there's a part of us that is also really wrapped around this as well. When I go to the gym, I haven't been recently because of COVID, but in my general experience at the gym, I don't know about your gym if you go to one, but in my gym, there's a whole bunch of ellipticals and, and running machines in the front area, and there's like seven or eight TV screens all up in front. The sound is off, but they've got the words playing. And invariably, it's always some sports channel. It's always some home improvement channel. It's always some news channel. And it's always some channel playing the show Supernatural, which is literally people getting their heads ripped off by demons and stuff and like buckets of blood. And I'm like on the elliptical like, holy moly, this is demonic. And it plays every day. One of the six channels is always supernatural, which is just this amazingly dark show about the demonic realm and how they just elevate it as the norm. So our culture is fascinating. It's like it's scientific, but it's also schizophrenic in the sense that it wants to be scientific and really fascinated by the dark world. And our culture literally is doing both. I find that interesting. I'm a student of culture. I want to understand the world around me. And we literally embrace both of these things. So I think fear and power actually runs in our culture more than we might realize. And by the way, friends, as more and more people play around with pagan practices and new age practices and all kinds of dark arts, they're going to be stumbling and tumbling into this stuff. And when we're sharing again the Romans road, they're like, holy cow, I feel like there's a demon every night over my bed. Can you help me? And if we're not able to shift gears and say, oh, yes, Jesus can help you. He's Lord over all that stuff. Now we're doing evangelism in this world. See, in the fear and power world, belief that spiritual power intermingles with the material world is just a matter of course. It is assumed. And fear in this worldview is that these powers are going to act capriciously, that they will cause harm to us, and we really can't know when it's coming, so we're always trying to appease these gods so they don't get angry and bring a whole lot of problems. That's the worldview in fear and power. There's also this fear that other people are trying to control me spiritually somehow. When I was in Turkey recently, they have these little charms, these little evil eye charms. They're all over the place. You can get them anywhere, and they put them up in their homes and so forth. And, and it's sort of this superstition, but there's really some truth to it in their worldview that, that people are, are going to somehow look, look at you wrong and can control you in some way. So this little amulet is somehow going to nullify that. It's part of the worldview. 
So as we're expressing Jesus, we're going to have to think, what makes sense to them? What are the issues in their world? By the way, in the fear and power world, we at Novo are discovering that, that Jesus is showing up to people and, and they're experiencing him in dreams and they're like realizing, oh my gosh, he's Lord. Dreams and visions in the fear and power world is normal communication for them. That's acceptable, totally understandable. And when they have a literal vision of Jesus, often they'll come running to the various missionaries and the pastors over in those parts of the world and they're like, oh my goodness, I've seen him. How do I become a follower? They didn't go through the Romans road. They just realized he's king. It's amazing. So if we're going to minister in a fear and power world, felt needs integrating spirituality into most or all parts of life is going to be important. So events and safety and routines and relationships, health, finances, travel, all of this stuff, these symbols, these ceremonies are part of their worldview. So we have to understand how important those are to people and help them understand how Jesus touches those issues as well. So, again, I'm raised here in the West. I've been raised, I'm, you know, a, a kind of a classical Western scientific education. I was going to be a physics major until I took engineering calculus, and that ended pretty badly, right? But I've always been fascinated by science. I revere it very well. I love my scientist friends and my engineering friends and all of that. So that's my worldview. I'm raised in the sciences. I totally get it. I respect it. I love it. About 15 years ago, my wife and I were on sabbatical. We were in India. I was teaching in a seminary over there. Maybe I should say I was consulting in a seminary over there, however that works. And I'm, so my, our, our, our guides, our friends, who were also missionaries over there, they took us one afternoon on a little, a little tour. We went to this huge Muslim temple. And then afterward, we went to another place. We went to this top of this hill on a bus where there was literally an Indian temple, a Hindu temple, on the top of the hill, there were thousands of people gathered around. There was an imam, not an imam, that would be the wrong religion. There was some kind of high priest on a microphone blasting out these rituals, these songs, this, this chant. It was shrill. It was difficult to hear. There were literally monkeys running around. It, was, it looked like straight out of National Geographic, right? Like, like I can't believe there's monkeys running around, right? And I'm at this Hindu temple. And just outside the Hindu temple is this great big bull made of rock, and they called it, by the way, the demon god. <laughs> I'm like, whoa, okay, this place is serious, right? And as, the, as these, these um, priests are shouting and chanting, people are dancing and twirling, and their eyes are rolling back in their head, and they're literally in a trance. And there are people selling sacrifices that you can buy before you take it into the temple to get a blessing from the, peace, from the priest inside. And my head is absolutely splitting. I can feel the demonic oppression in the air so thick like a knife. And I realized at that moment what Paul must have felt when he walked by the Ephesian temple of Artemis that this stuff like was no joke. And my worldview of, oh, it's all, all these just are religions, it's all harmless. No, these people were in literal spiritual bondage. And I could feel it all the way to the balls of my feet, I mean to the top of my head. I wanted to get out of there so fast because it was pure evil. I'd never felt that before. But now when I read about worldview and power and, and that whole world, I'm like, no, that is absolutely real. 
And yet, our gospel deals with that as well. Right? Does that make sense? Some of you have experienced those kinds of things, and they're kind of an eye-opener, aren't they? Eugene Nida, in his book, Customs and Cultures, Anthropology for Christian Missions, really helps us understand this worldview, too. And, he, and they note that Westerners were often skeptical of this worldview. We're like, no, that, that just seems so backwards. It seems so unenlightened. Because we're so smart, right? We're so enlightened with the enlightenment. We have the scientific method. We, have, we, we don't need spiritual rules for life. We can, everything can be determined through the sciences. And then you, get, you, you go over to a culture like that, and you literally realize that the demonic is running wild. And you're like, okay, i got to change my worldview. But see, Westerners are also jolted when they experience something they cannot rationally explain, including me. And so this is going to be important for us, whether we literally go to a foreign country in a fear-power context, or whether you're talking to somebody at Starbucks you can point out this. In, in the Old Testament, of course, Moses and the plagues of Egypt, that is some serious spiritual power. The kingdom coming down. Elijah and the prophets of Baal. I mean, these are power encounters in Scripture. Daniel and the writing on the wall. I mean, these are supernatural events that take place. In the New Testament, of course, Jesus' ministry amongst the, the healings and the exorcism. Jesus is now reclaiming the territory. Demons are out. The kingdom has come, and this stuff is to be gone. He's pushing back the gates of hell, literally. Of course, the signs and the wonders amongst the multitudes in Acts chapter 5, this, these manifestations where the spirit power is coming and pushing out the darkness. But see, the cross and the resurrection, of course, bring freedom. And if you're witnessing to somebody in a fear and power worldview, the cross allows Jesus to be victor, which was termed the Christus victor, or Christus victor. And the demons in the spirit world were constant companions in the worldview of the New Testament. And even after Jesus came in the centuries after, the early church dealt with this stuff all the time. And I do think, sadly, that it's coming to a theater near you. Because as our culture gets more and more pagan, we're just opening doors for more of this stuff in our culture. So we need not be naive. So I think this fear and power worldview stuff is going to be important for us in our future. Of course, in the early church, exorcisms, healing, signs, and wonders were very numerous. And were going on for hundreds of years following Jesus' coming. Even Origen noted how learned sorcerers use complex magical devices, potions, and spells, while the simple, uneducated Christians would simply cast out demons with a word. Because they had real power. Power of the Holy Spirit. Spirit can deal with this stuff. Jesus can deal with this stuff. And we can, we can help people understand, if you're living in this worldview, if you're oppressed by this stuff, Jesus can and does win. When Jesus comes to those with fear and power, he replaces fear with love. And love overcomes fear, and it seeks to exert power in ways to free, bless, and prosper people. If Christ can literally defeat spirits and darkness, he has the power to free you from your sin. See, sin is still a real issue. We're just kind of attacking it from a different angle. And if Christ can heal you and free you, he can also free you from your sin these are images of salvation. So the power of Jesus, by the way, is also relevant to people 
who are struggling with addictions and those who've been through abuse, the power of Jesus is a very, very powerful image for them as well. If you're interested in this kind of stuff, some great resources from Charles Kraft, as I've mentioned. Craig Keener just read his wonderful uh, newest book on miracles. He's a New Testament scholar out of Duke University, Duke Seminary, I believe. He's, he's just an amazing researcher, and he actually, his most recent book is about all these miracles happening in medical science. There's a, the argument goes, well, if all that healing stuff happens, why, is it, why do no doctors note it on the charts? And he's like, that's a good question. So we went out and found all these doctors who noted the miracles on the charts. And it's a fascinating read to see how God is moving today and doing crazy things like this, healings and all kinds of things. Bill Randall is actually part of Novo. He has a great book called, um, what's it called, Nick? Oh, don't fail me now, buddy. No, the life Jesus always, the life Jesus always wanted for you or something like that, real close. Look up Bill Randall. It's a fabulous book. It's the kind of book I wish I'd written because I, I just love how he put it all together. The life Jesus made possible. There it is. The Life Jesus Made Possible, great book from one of our colleagues, help you navigate some of this. Of course, the ministry of John Wimber from the Vineyard and a lot of his books, I've been reading a lot of that stuff recently too. Some of those books are 50 years old, but they speak like they were written yesterday. And of course, I shared earlier, if you were here on Sunday, the Asheville Burger Restaurant incident, <laughs> where again, I realized, okay, God's up to something good and he can use supernatural ways to reach people, to cut through in fact, Nick, you were there, right? What's that? Oh, you were not there. You were one of the guys missing. Oh, bummer. It was just an amazing thing to watch that gal, that, that pagan gal, go back to the kitchen after her ankle was healed by a bunch of scared missionaries <laughs> praying in power and trusting Jesus. And as I said before, if I had been in that town, I would have been back there three days later, four days later, checked in on her, and I would have continued that conversation because I know something shifted in her soul when God touched her in a tangible way and cut through all of her postmodern thinking and said, I love you, I'm here. So if we're going to do evangelism in the fear and power worldview, I, I encouraged us on Sunday to think about this. Pray for the sick. Ask the question, may I pray for you? And then just start praying the power of God and kingdom on them and see what happens. We think there's actually four paradigms of healing. This is actually well documented in, in Bill Randall's book. There's one idea that nothing's going to happen all the time. I was trained up as a kid to think that. And then I realized when I prayed and something happened, I have to let go of that. There's the idea that something will happen all the time, which I actually believe. Whether they get healed or whether they realize they feel special because you're praying for them, they will be blessed. Sometimes everything actually happens. And the last worldview is everything should happen all the time. But I think because we live in the now and the not yet, sometimes God's doing other things. Sometimes there's other forces there. It, it's, it's God's business. But I want to be faithful to pray and see what God will do. So pray for blessing and protection in everyday life events. Pray for dedications of homes. Pray for families. Pray for crops. Pray for livestock. Those things mean things to those in the power worldview. And I know that God wants to answer those things to show them he's real. So go there. And of course, pray for protection against evil spirits as well. If you're going to share in this worldview, share evangelism in this worldview, talk about God's displays of power. Tell Bible stories. Point to the scriptures that show God winning over the enemy. 
Wherever there's spiritual forces and stories in the scripture, use those to show that God wins. And if you encounter a person who's involved in another power source, if you think they're actually channeling something evil, if you think they're in the occult and some of that kind of stuff, instead of just kind of railing and going up against it hard, you might ask questions to figure out what real issues driving them to search after power. It may be that your gospel presentation actually is about that topic and not just doing a power encounter right off the top. Share how Jesus can meet that need. All right, let's bring this home. We've got one more. The indifference worldview. And how do we bring people to belonging? Quick story. So secularization, in, prior to the 15th century, the existence of God in the spirit world was basically assumed by most societies around the world. They may have different interpretations of what it is, but it was assumed that, yep, there is some kind of divine being or divine beings, and there is a real spirit world, and it interacts with us. That was just assumed everywhere. And then around the 15th century in Europe, there was some intellectual activity, some new ideas, the emergence of science, industrialization, a market economy, and all of this, and now technology begins to dominate life, and the thinking goes, now that we have science and management and, and the dominance of technology, we no longer need the spirit world. Oh, that was foolish. Now again, I like my iPhone. I'm glad somebody figured it out, right? I like this clicker. I'm glad somebody figured this stuff out. I'm not anti-science. I'm just saying it's not the end-all to be-all. It's not everything. It's a way of knowing. It's not the only way of knowing. But in the modern world, science trumps everything else. And there can be nothing that you can't measure scientifically. In the mid to late 20th century, a whole new stream of thought began to challenge the idea of progress in science and basically said, you know, there might be other ways of looking for truth. How do we know that there's not other things out there? And so the idea that, that truth is actually socially constructed and now there's ideas that everything is all about power and language, that's the postmodern world. And by the way, that erupted in our culture in about 2010 when all of these academic theories from the university basically landed in our culture in a big thump, whomp, and this tool in your pocket around 2007 allowed all these crazy academic ideas that were usually relegated to the high towers of the academic institutions, they suddenly became reified as truth and spread immediately, which is why in the last 10 years our culture has changed drastically, which is why you all feel seasick, including me. Because to use your illustration, the boat has turned really quickly. And we're all a bit, bit dizzy. So now the postmodern world challenges modernity. It challenges everything. Nothing can really be known. Everything is truth is completely uh, socially constructed from everybody's biases. And anytime you make a truth claim, you're really trying to dominate and have power over me. So in that worldview, it's very difficult to communicate at all. Everybody's angry at everybody. Everybody assumes everybody's trying to control them and dominate them. And even when they say we must rise up and dominate the dominators, there's no reason why I shouldn't dominate you once you get to the top. It's a never-ending cycle. Postmodernity is not helpful in any way. 
In the book Cynical Theories, uh, Pluckrose and Lindsay, who are actually left-leaning atheist philosophers and scientists and, and medieval scholars, they undo a lot of this because they realize that postmodernity is an acid, they think, that burns through the desk, that burns through the floor, that burns through the earth, and then it consumes the entire universe because it never ends. It takes down everything. What they did say was sadly, it probably will take down institutions and personalities and people and their, and their legacies and their careers and it will burn really hot and hard until it burns out. It will come to an end when it's got nothing left to burn or until we finally say enough is enough when too many people have been destroyed. But this worldview is extremely destructive. And there's lots you can do in reading about that. But I want to say this is the new worldview, and if your young people are raised in this milieu that there's no such thing as truth, then they are fully secularized, and they still need Jesus, but the reality is they're still made in the image of God, right? God still loves them, and he wants to reach them. And so even though secularism and all of its issues the rise of secularism, moon and ought, say it this way, advocates, values, and public policies that are free from religious influence typically assign religion to the private sphere. You can't bring that into the public world. Religion is, is something for you at home. It's, it's not true anyway. It's just whatever you want to believe. But don't bring that to the public square. And we're not going to preference any religion whatsoever. In fact, it's all fake anyway. That's the assumption. And when people grab onto that, they're just really indifferent to whatever you have to say about religion. And yet, these folks are hungering for community. But it makes sense, right? Because God is three persons in a trinity who's in community, who makes human beings in his image. Of course people crave community. And if they have nothing else to grab onto, it's all they've got left is a feeling of belonging. Well, the gospel can reach that too, right? Viktor Frankl noted an existential vacuum in people who had a total, ultimate meaninglessness in their lives. There is a great vacuum, a great hole in people today. And so what it leads to is deep religious indifference. Sadly, the Western millennials, this is their worldview. You've heard it talked about the rise of the nuns. The nuns are the ones, they're not the nuns as in N-U-N. The nuns are N-O-N-E-S. These are the ones that when you ask them what religious preference they have, they check on the box, none. I don't have any religious affiliation. Not interested, not my bag, no go. There's a chart there on your, if you can see it on your notes, and the largest group is the indifferent secularists, secularists that just don't care. So again, if we come at them with a worldview of, of justice and they don't believe there's such a thing as truth, it's a no-go. But these folks are searching for these questions. There's identity issues. Who am I really? How do I live in today's world when this overstimulated world makes me incredibly anxious? How in the midst of my loneliness do I actually feel real love? What is my purpose? I know I'm just protoplasm made by stars, but somehow I still want a purpose, right? It's, it's, the gospel goes right into there. We just have to get it tuned in just right. 
What matters beyond me? So these folks who are highly technological are using YouTube and Google to look for life's answers. And they're getting a lot of weird stuff. But you know what's interesting? In the Old Testament, Cain responded to sin with indifference in Genesis chapter 4. He didn't seem to care. In the New Testament, Zacchaeus was just kind of an outsider of the whole religious Jewish community. So Jesus doesn't start with guilt or shame or even fear. He's all about belonging. Hey, Zacchaeus, I'm coming to your house this afternoon. I want to commune. I want to hang out with you. That's a belonging thing. Jesus doesn't start with you're a sinner and you got to repent. Hey, I'm coming to your house. That's how we reach this generation. So if we're going to reach them in an indifferent world, they're looking deeply for community. They're looking for significance. And they're searching for actually meaning. Even though they'll say life has no meaning, deep down they know that's not true. And we can tap into that. Because Jesus offers community, significance, and transcendence. He answers those needs. So, pre-conversion for these folks actually means probably belonging before they're going to believe. So we want to have churches and, and ministries that allow people to come and to be searching and to be, and if they're indifferent, we welcome them. But if they're looking for community, come serve with us. We're going to go build a house in Mexico and you come right along. Now in my old training, it's like, oh, are they mature enough to go on the mission trip? And I got to be flexible to say, hey, they got to come along and experience people who love each other in community serving somebody else. That will speak to their heart. And it might get messy on that mission trip, but ministry's messy, and God can handle our mess. So we want to help them make a difference in service and leadership and even begin to mentor people. I would love it. What's interesting in my hometown in Texas, there's a ministry called Project Mentor. It's, I should say ministry. It's a, it's a school program where you're actually invited as adults in, this, in the community to get paired up with a student and just go meet with them for lunch once a week for half an hour you bring them lunch and you just, you know, talk with them week after week. You can build relationships and if they're coming out of post-modernity and all this nonsense, but you're being there week after week. You love them. You'll have chances to share the gospel. It's not officially sanctioned, but you can, you can do it. They'll ask questions, right? Just being with them, loving them, mentoring people. We love them into the kingdom. George Hunter said, people need to belong before they'll believe. That's our new world. Dark Damaz says, we have to demonstrate, not just explain. And so be authentic. We have to be real. These are my ups and my downs, and Jesus is still with me. We have to be hopeful. We have to be honest and real with our lives. And then ask them questions. Where are people finding meaning and purpose today? How's that working for you? Who's that? Dr. Phil said that? How's that working for you, right? Get them to talk about that stuff, all right? Has this been helpful? I hope it has framed, re reframed things a little bit. The rest of the notes are there about holistic evangelism. We don't have time to get into all of that. It, it just kind of builds on these ideas that there's different ways we can love and serve people in unique contexts, making sure we're understanding what kind of worldview they're in, 
And actually, many of the ideas that are already printed there, we've already talked about in other lectures anyway, so it's kind of a repeat. But I hope you realize that evangelism today is a wonderful opportunity. It's just not a script that we've memorized. If we can learn to listen and to love and to be there authentically and get into their worldview, the good news is the scriptures answer all their issues. We just have to be winsome in learning how to meet the ones that really will land well for them. Amen? Amen. Amen. Worship team, thank you for coming. God bless you. We'll see you tomorrow morning.